Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Welcome to First Move. Great to have you with us this Friday. A historic day in the world of tech with Elon Musk completing his $44 billion deal to buy Twitter. Musk becoming the owner of the troubled social media giant after a tumultuous takeover drama that began way back in April. How can we forget? It ended this morning with Musk sharing this tweet, the bird is freed. And I tell you what, feathers are well and truly flying. Musk making his mark immediately, his first move, firing the CEO, the CFO and the exec responsible for banning Trump on Twitter. And of course, as we saw yesterday, crowning himself chief twit. The question is, what now? Will Trump be back? And how will Twitter change for users, if at all? We'll discuss all the ins and outs later on in the show with venture capitalist Bragged Tusk, the founder of Tusk Ventures. Now, Musk's deal closing at an inauspicious time for financial markets too, a Halloween season where the scariest word on Wall Street literally has been tech. Almost $1 trillion worth of market cap wiped off the biggest firms in just a few days. Amazon, in fact, the latest horror show falling 13% pre-market after posting weak results and guidance. And like Microsoft earlier this week, it's seeing a slowdown in a key growth area, cloud computing. Amazon also seeing a soft holiday shopping season ahead, as does Apple, by the way. All the details on what they had to say coming right up. In the meantime, Amazon's plunge pressuring the Nasdaq, the tech-heavy sector once again. As you can see there, the index losing close to over 4% in the past two days. And it's now down more than 30% this year. Tech stocks, in the meantime, also getting crushed over in China. The Hang Seng falling more than 3.5% in the session overnight to a fresh 13-year low. Truly the tech nightmare before Halloween. Tech's ongoing pain and Musk begins his Twitter reign. And that is where we begin the show. Mark Stewart and Claire Duffy join us now. And I know, Claire, you in particular have been covering this all night. So thank you for making it with us uh, today. Mark, I want to begin with you. The deal is done. One cloud of uncertainty uh, hanging over this stock clears, but the drama continues, including the exodus of the chief executive, the CFO and others. Walk us through the last mm, 12 hours. I was going to say, Julia, it hasn't even been 24 hours since we last spoke on air. And so much has changed. We were wondering what was going to happen next. But yes, there has been a big exodus from the C-suite. And that certainly is one of the big headlines. So gone now from Twitter is uh, CEO uh, Prague Agarwal, as well as Chief Financial Officer Ned Siegel. Uh, None of this too much of a big surprise, because especially between Agarwal and, and Musk, as we have reported over the last few months, it's been a bit of a frosty relationship. Of course, the other question remains what happens to the thousands of other Twitter employees. Perhaps we will get some more direction on that later today. 
Uh, I also can't but help bring up the tweet that you mentioned earlier about the tweet from uh, Musk saying that the uh, the bird is freed. Well, evidence that this is a global company. And when you make a tweet like that, it generates response around the world, including um, from Terry Breton, who is the EU commissioner for internal markets. Uh, he uh, basically snapped back at that tweet, saying the bird in Europe, that is, in Europe, the bird will fly by our EU rules, making a nod to the, sw- uh, to the strict tech regulation uh, that can be found across the EU. Because not only does the change in the C-suite mean just different phases, But, Julia, as you well know, it also could signal a big change in philosophy and direction of the company. Absolutely. And that's the key, Claire, comment on this, because, as um, Mark quite rightly said, the question is, what now? Will former President Trump be allowed back on the platform? Of course, he was banned in the wake of the January 6th capital attacks. Content moderation, one of the big keys. What do we think? I think that we will see Donald Trump at least have his account restored on the platform. You know, he has said that he will stay on Truth Social, his own social media platform. But it's hard to deny the fact that on Twitter he had tens of millions more followers. And it won't be a surprise if he decides to return. And it's not just Trump. A lot of the banned accounts on Twitter, controversial figures, could also have their accounts restored. And that'll make a big change, especially ahead of the midterms, ahead of the 2024 presidential election. And beyond that, I think, you know, it'll be interesting to see what Musk decides to do. He said he wants to make Twitter a more maximalist free speech platform. But he also had to walk that back a little bit yesterday, telling advertisers that he didn't want Twitter to become a free-for-all hellscape where anything can be said with no consequences, because that would have advertisers wanting to run away. (laughs) So I think it'll be an interesting balance for him to try to figure out, which, of course, is the thing that all social media platforms are grappling with all the time. Absolutely. And if we take the politics and the specific content out of it, at the time of former President Donald Trump's Twitter ban, we asked whether a social media should have the power to silence a president or, or a world leader. And again, these questions coming back to the fore in light of um, what, what Elon Musk does next. But what about other options for monetization? Because as Claire quite rightly pointed out there, there's this juxtaposition between perhaps wanting to be more free and easy with content and allowing this to be a free platform. But at the same time, um, if you want advertisers, you need those ad, those uh, eyeballs watching. But there are also questions about where you place those ads versus difficult, controversial content, too. Right. Ad revenue is everything at the end of the day. But let me throw out some business buzzwords. Innovator, disruptor. That's what Elon Musk has been. And that is what perhaps we will see in the future. I mean, Musk has made no secret. He wants to perhaps uh, develop Twitter into the super app, something similar to what we see in Asia with encrypted messaging in, in, in direct messages. So that is something that he could explore that perhaps hasn't been done before and could be seen as a way to keep as well as court new advertisers. I think it's also important to mention the relationship that he has formed with former founder of Twitter, Jack Dorsey. Uh, The two have talked about this deal. Uh, He has in many ways served as an advisor. This does not mean that Jack Dorsey is coming back to Twitter, but it means that Musk has someone to lean on. And when you take on a platform as large as this and you have Musk's wealth, you want to get lots of Lots of different opinions, lots of different direction, and perhaps we could see that, that relationship with Dorsey strengthen even further. 
Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see who he puts in charge or if he tries to uh, take this on himself and put himself in the, the CEO role because, oh boy, is Elon Musk already busy. Um, well, we're going to talk more about this during the show, guys. Thank you so much for now, Mark Stewart and Claire Duffy there. OK, let's move on. The $44 billion takeover, of course, comes as tech giants continue to see their stock values pummeled. Shares of Amazon falling now 14% pre-market after warning about weaker sales growth this quarter as its crucial cloud computer business slows down. So far this week, Meta, of course, aka Facebook, has dropped more than 22% and Alphabet nearly 6%. Rahul Solomon joins us on this. Rahul, I know you've been watching all of these. Let's hone in on what Amazon said. It's become a de facto bellwether for the US consumer, but a warning in there for the cloud computing business, which is something we heard from Microsoft too. What's your take? It is. Well, Julia, you know, this has been called the tech wreck of a week and Amazon really adding to that pain for investors. I know you mentioned that shares were off about 14 percent pre-market. Consider this, Julia, after the bell yesterday, after the company reported shares were off almost 20 percent. So what did they say that spooked investors? Because it was actually a pretty decent quarter the current quarter, right? I mean, sales, revenues and profits were roughly in line. Sales grew 14% versus last year. Although in its cloud business, those sales were actually soft. That revenue was actually soft. And in fact, it's what's just ahead in this current quarter, this holiday quarter that really spooked investors, Julia. Uh, The company lowering its guidance quite significantly, essentially acknowledging that it expects things to get tougher. Now, one perhaps silver lining, as one analyst pointed out in a note, is that if Amazon is facing these headwinds in terms of retail, then, you know, the other retailers are also also absolutely dealing with these headwinds. And Amazon has a better financial cushion because it has those really profitable sectors like AWS and advertising. But in an environment, Julie, of course, as you know, where there is so much pessimism, there is so much uncertainty. When you hear a bellwether like Amazon, as you pointed out, suggesting things are about to get worse, investors don't like it. No, and they certainly reflected that today. I mean, one of the things, they, the issues that they were talking about is the impact of the stronger dollar. And we've heard that from so many corporates with foreign earnings this season. And we heard it also from Apple, though, I have to say, if you're looking for a, a shining, shiny example of uh, an outperformer this earnings season, look no further than Apple. Exactly. Dan Ives saying it was the bright spot. Apple was the bright spot in an otherwise horror show for the tech players. Apple actually seeing pretty solid growth for things like uh, its iPhone for the Mac. Those sales were strong. In fact, revenue grew 8% for the company uh, versus last year, just over $90 billion in the quarter. That said, it also saw some weakness for things like the iPad, uh, also saw services come in a bit soft. And this is what analysts are really keying into, because although it was a solid quarter, a bright spot, as you point out, services were weak. And some analysts are wondering, is that the sign of consumers starting to pull back? Are they starting to pull back on their subscriptions, still buying? And really across geographies, Julia, when you look at sort of where the iPhone sales were uh, sort of concentrated, really all across the world, still seeing strong growth. But consumers are pulling back on services. And so analysts are starting to feel like, is this the first sign of the shoe dropping with Apple? Mm. And we shall continue to watch this space. Holiday season going to be critically important. Absolutely. Rahel Solomon, thank you so much for that. 
Okay, this just into CNN. Paul Pelosi, the husband of U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, is recovering after being attacked at the couple's home in San Francisco Friday morning. A spokesperson for the Speaker's office said the assailant is in custody and the motivation for the attack is now under investigation. We're learning that he is expected to make a full recovery. Speaker Pelosi was not in San Francisco at the time of the attack. And we will let you know as soon as we hear further details about his condition. In the meantime, the head of the UN's nuclear watchdog is raising concerns about a potential North Korean nuclear weapon test, saying, quote, everybody is holding their breath. He was speaking just hours before Pyongyang fired two short-range ballistic missiles, according to South Korean officials. They came down in the sea to the east of the peninsula. Ivan Watson has all the details. Ivan, and uh, let's just be clear, this was not any form of, of nuclear weapons test, this 28th, I believe, missile test of the year for North Korea, but a very concerning warning coming from the UN nuclear watchdog there almost at the same time. It is. I mean, the tensions have been mounting on the Korean peninsula for months now, and the missile launches, this blitz of missile launches that North Korea has been embarking on, uh, is evidence of that. The, the 28th launch uh, this year alone, it's a huge surge from North Korea. In this case, uh, two missiles, short-range missiles, uh, believed to be fired around a 20-minute period uh, around noon local time that flew east uh, some 230 kilometers before splashing into the sea. The U.S. military says that they posed no immediate threat to U.S. personnel or to U.S. allies in the region, but they are concerned about it. The South Korean uh, military has called this a uh, provocation. North Korea has said that it's firing these missiles in response to military exercises that its South Korean rival has been conducting uh, in the past alongside the U.S. and Japan. Just this week, uh, South Korea was conducting its own amphibious assault landing exercises that, that CNN witnessed. Uh, and there have been other rounds of exercises that North Korea is angry at as well. Other signs of tensions have been uh, that North and South Korea have been firing artillery warning shots uh, into the, the buffer zone, the maritime buffer zone in recent weeks. That's another sign of trouble in the region. And then there's the concern about a potential seventh North Korean nuclear test. And the question that we're hearing from the U.S. government, from the South Koreans, uh, is not if but when this could take place. So let's take a listen to what the head of the IAEA had to say uh, about fears of a seventh such potential North Korean nuclear test. Well, everybody is holding its breath about this because uh, another uh, nuclear test would be yet another confirmation of a program which is uh, moving full steam ahead in a way that is incredi incredibly concerning. Uh, further tests, of course, means that they are refining the preparations and the construction of their uh, arsenal. Julia, the U.S. State Department spokesman has said that, that the State Department assesses that North Korea is preparing its test site. You had senior U.S., Japanese and South Korean officials recently meeting. They say that there will be an unparalleled response if North Korea does conduct a seventh uh, nuclear test. But North Korea just last month passed a law declaring itself a nuclear-powered 
nation. And the North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un has said that there will be no reversing of this status. It is questionable what kind of leverage the U.S. and its allies could have against North Korea if it does, in fact, move forward. North Korea is one of the most isolated countries in the world. It faces huge sanctions, and it then went further, cutting itself off from the rest of the world and from international trade during the COVID pandemic. Julia? That's just deeply concerning. Ivan, great to have your context. Thank you so much for that. Ivan Watson. Okay, we're back after this. Stay with First Move and stay with CNN. Welcome back to First Move. In Ukraine, parts of Kyiv are in the dark after the latest barrage of Russian attacks on the country's energy system. Some power facilities have been set on fire as Russian missiles knocked out at least 30 percent of the region's power supply on Thursday. Electricity was restored in some areas, but officials say more than a quarter of a million homes in the Kyiv region are still without power. At the same time, Russian President Vladimir Putin trying to play down, it seems, fears of a nuclear confrontation with the West. He claims he never intentionally said anything about using nuclear weapons in Ukraine and accused the United States and its allies of playing a dangerous game by blaming Russia for the world's problems. Russia is not challenging the Western allies. Russia is just defending its right to exist and to freely develop. Joining us now is Ian Bremer, president and founder of Eurasia Group and G Zero Media. Ian, always great to have you on the show. Also the author, of course, of The Power of Crisis, How Three Threats and Our Response Will Change the World. Ian, what do you make of Vladimir Putin's comments? We've spent a week hearing from Western officials about their concerns that Russia could perhaps use a dirty bomb, as it's called in Ukraine, as a pretext for escalation. These are more uh, de-escalating comments, perhaps. I'd say they're sideways comments, kind of a holding okay. pattern. Uh, the most important comment that uh, Putin made on the nuclear front was talking about Russian nuclear doctrine as a response to the territorial integrity being threatened of Russia. And of course, the way that that is defined presently by Putin and the Kremlin is including all of the territories of Ukraine that they have illegally annexed. Now, that means in particular this issue of Kherson, which you know is the town, the city in the south of Ukraine. It's critical transit point infrastructure water for Crimea, um, where the Russians have recently announced a um, evacuation of civilians. They're keeping troops there. They're still fighting. The Ukrainians are likely to retake that territory. But this is also the territory where the Russian defense minister, Shoigu, has been talking with all of the European, the American secretary of defense, as well as in India and China, saying that there's going to be an attack, a dirty bomb attack uh, by the Ukrainians. Now, no one thinks this is remotely plausible, but there's an immense amount of effort that's gone into this from the Kremlin. And this is what has the White House and NATO leaders spooked. Uh, the idea that if it looks like Kherson is going to fall, that the Russians might be planning a false flag attack. This is why Biden has focused so much in his uh, commentary recently on threatening the Russians if they were to use a tactical nuclear weapon on the ground in Ukraine. So I think the level of concern about that on the part of NATO leaders is about as high as it has been in the last two weeks. I don't think it's changed at all from Putin's speech. 
I've seen some commentary suggesting that uh, Vladimir Putin's trying to find points of maximum leverage, given, as you're describing, how under pressure the forces are on the ground in Ukraine for future negotiation. Do you buy that? Or is there greater risk, perhaps, of a more aggressive response under pressure? Look, I, I think Putin is trying to do everything he can um, to avoid further losses from his military on the ground in Ukraine. They're underperforming um, and he's trying to get troops on the ground, even if though they're badly trained and badly armed to defend territory and stop the Ukrainians from taking more ground, which of course gets, gets harder for the Ukrainians uh, as we move into the winter months. Um, th this is, uh, you know, that, that's the, the Russians don't have many options, right? So, I mean, we're seeing that the Russians hadn't been attacking critical infrastructure of Ukraine in the first seven months of the war. Now they are. And in the last three weeks, 40% of Ukraine's electricity grid has been damaged or destroyed, so much so that the Ukrainian government this week is telling refugees in Europe, don't come back because uh, the power grid can't handle the additional strain this winter. They weren't saying that even a week ago. So the Russians, I think, are understand they're under pressure. They don't have good options in the near term, and they're using everything they can. Some of that is escalatory. Some of that is we're ready to talk um, to try to avoid uh, more embarrassing losses over the coming few weeks. The coming few weeks are clearly, in some ways, the most dangerous of the conflict so far because the Ukrainians are being quite successful in their counteroffensive. And the Russians are admitting that on state media. If you watch Russian media, they're not saying, they're not pretending that they're holding all that ground, but they're saying that they're losing to NATO. They're, they're losing to NATO weapons, to NATO intelligence, to NATO training. And of course, that means that the likelihood this war expands from the Russian perspective is also going up. OK, so let's expand it further, because at the same time as this, we've seen a dramatic consolidation of power over in China by Xi Jinping. We can talk about what that means sort of domestically and geopolitically, but I want to ask you specifically about Russia at this moment. Um, it's surely not in China's interest to see any kind of nuclear or otherwise escalation, particularly in their future relationship with the West, if Xi Jinping is in a position with great leverage over Russia, and then we do see some kind of dramatic escalation, to have them turn around to him and say, you had a moment in time where you could have done something and you didn't. Is there pressure now on China to intervene? Is, and will they? There's, there's pressure, Julia. But I mean, the question is, how great is that leverage? I mean, the Chinese have far greater leverage over North Korea than they do over Russia. And yes, the, yet the North Koreans have done all sorts of things over the past years that the Chinese have not liked. I mean, I remember some of their nuclear tests after the Chinese had had guaranteed um, Americans just a couple of days before in previous administrations that the North Koreans were not going to do that. And the Chinese were embarrassed. They lost face. So, I mean, the Chinese, you'll remember when Xi Jinping last met face to face with Putin in Uzbekistan about a month ago, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization meeting. And, and Xi Jinping told Putin directly that they don't want this war to escalate. And Putin in his public comments said he understood that the Chinese were not, they had questions um, about the war. Well, you know, so there's some tension in the relationship, but literally a week after that meeting, the Russians announced they were going to annex these territories illegally and called up another 300,000 troops. So I, I question 
just how effective the leverage the Chinese have over Russia actually is. Yeah, or, or how much they're really utilizing it. I guess you could argue that there's a, there is a difference between what we're seeing versus North Korea. And to your point about the fact that there's NATO nations involved here, so the, the risks of something far greater are arguably higher. But, you know, I want to ask you about something else, which I also think is very important geopolitically, as well as in the technology space. And that's the, the deal now between uh, Elon Musk to purchase and take Twitter private. I mean, there are all sorts of angles that we can discuss here. But it, for me, it crystallizes once again your point about technopolar influence. You've got Elon Musk's sort of inadvertently taking sides in the Russia-Ukraine war, providing the Starlink satellites to Ukraine. He's got interests in China with uh, electric cars and the, the operations that he has there. I mean, he sort of has a, a finger in many pies in terms of businesses, but he also has a finger in many pies geopolitically as well, which I'm sure in certain cases he'd rather not have them quite frankly, and that's uh, down to governments to step in and, and pay for things. But, but in this moment in time, as the richest man in the world taking ownership of a very influential and important social media platform. So, Julia, you and I have talked about this for a couple of years now. Mm. The fact that increasingly a handful of technology companies, uh, most of which are based in the United States, effectively exert sovereignty in the digital space. They act as governments. And so when we talk about something like the war in Ukraine, you have NATO countries that are providing weapons, but you have technology companies that in many cases are doing a lot more for the Ukrainians than most NATO countries are. And obviously that makes them aligned uh, from a NATO perspective. It makes them belligerents from a Russian perspective, but the decisions are not treaty bound. The decisions are being made by individual executives in the C-suites in these companies. And in the case of Elon, they're being made individually by Elon. Now, what's so interesting here is that SpaceX um, is really a national champion for the United States, right? I mean, the contracts are mostly the Pentagon, they're mostly NATO. And so, I mean, not a surprise that they'd go in and support the Ukrainians. On the other hand, Tesla is a global corporation, also owned uh, a large piece of which by Elon, um, and that the Chinese are a critical market for. And now Twitter. Um, taken private by Elon and very different perspectives in all three of those companies in terms of what they mean, what they have to do geopolitically. So, I mean, the real question is, how do you navigate those three radically different models of geopolitical and economic influence that in some right. ways really do not work together well? I thought you were going to answer the question there. <laughs> Just, we're posing it. I agree. I mean, it's I, who knows? Actually, so yeah, my answer, Julia, my answer, yeah. my, my answer is that if you're Elon right now, you don't want to be. When you have business yeah. models that actually Back don't off. work geopolitically, <laughs> yeah. you, you want to be able to tell the U.S. government they're the ones making the decisions. It's not me personally. You want to step away from geopolitics as a, as a CEO and owner, uh, not lean into it. That would be my advice. I agree. Someone else. U.S. government needs to pay for the Starlink satellites or, or someone else, quite frankly, and, and take a step and back. And determine the geofencing. That would be better for Elon. Then he can tell the Chinese and the Russians, not it, not my responsibility. Agree. As always, it seems. Ian, great to get your wisdom. Thank you. Ian great Bremer, to see you, Julia. President and founder of the Eurasia Group and G Zero Media. And of course, as I mentioned, author of The Power of Crisis, How Three Threats and Our Response Will Change the World. More after this. 
Welcome back to First Move and a 70s classic rock edition of the programme, apparently. Free Bird, the song on the Tech World playlist as Elon Musk closes his $44 billion deal for Twitter. Perhaps we could also add in Bird Set Free by Sia too for all our younger first uh, movers here. Let's bring it into the 21st century. <laughs> Cheeky. Musk himself tweeting today, the bird is free, installing himself as the man in charge after a sweeping executive purge. So many implications for tech, for politics and the overall public public discourse in the social media world, but particularly for this deal. Musk, seemingly aware of the dangers of unfettered free speech, promising that the now privately held platform won't become a, quote, free-for-all hellscape. Not quite a hellscape, perhaps, but lots of pain this week for big tech. Tech, in fact, trying to bounce back in early trading after this week's latest fang failure, Amazon. It shares down some 14% in early trade. Apple, however, bucking the trend, opening uh, relatively unchanged. You can see there, three-tenths of a percent higher after posting better than expected earnings. And even Apple reporting weaker than expected iPhone sales and services too. Now, unlike Elon Musk, who carried a sink into Twitter headquarters earlier this week. If you remember, tech earnings are far from in sync with expectations this quarter. Bradley Tusk joins us now. He's the founder and CEO of Tusk Ventures and the author of The Fixer, My Adventures Saving Startups from Death by Politics. Just to be clear, he's not an investor in Apple, Amazon or Twitter. Bradley, fantastic to have you on the show. Um, Let's talk Twitter Musk to begin. Do you think this ends up being a good business decision for Musk? And does that perhaps necessitate not doing some of the things that are required to fix it, be it uh, content moderation or policing things like hate speech? Right. I mean, the first thing is is trying to figure out why he did this in the first place, right? So Twitter, as we all know, is not in and of itself a successful business at all. And so why someone as rich and successful as Elon Musk would want to own it, it can't be because he wants to free the bird and put Donald Trump back on the platform and he cares so much about the First Amendment. Nobody spends $44 billion to profess their love to the First Amendment. So there's obviously other reasons why he's doing this. To me, from a business standpoint, the one that makes the most sense is there's a bigger disparity between Tesla's actual value and its market value than pretty much any company out there. And the reason why is... There's the reality of the company and there's sort of the hype and cult of Elon and the differential between the two results in hundreds of millions of dollars in extra uh, market cap value for Tesla and therefore for Musk. Um, So my thought is as he prepares to take SpaceX public, it is possible he says the hype machine of Twitter is so valuable to me. It results in hundreds of millions of dollars in incremental value. For Tesla, I could do the same thing for SpaceX when I take other companies public. And so if I control the hype machine, I can really impact my share price. That would make sense. It may not be why he's doing it. From a business standpoint, that's the best I can come up with. My guess is it's a little more the reality of he is an incredibly public person who has an incredible, endless appetite for attention of pretty much any kind. And when he feels like he needs attention, he will say and do almost anything to get it. In many ways, not like Kanye West or Donald Trump. And so the, the nicer way to think about this is there is a long-term business plan that he actually has in mind. I think the more realistic is he wanted attention and because he was so desperate for it, it just cost him $44 billion. Wow. I mean, there was so much in that. I'm, I'm sort of 
excited and struggling to know which direction to take it first. I mean, $44 billion is a lot to pay for um, sort of PR and media for companies, particularly for uh, Tesla, where he's never actually done that and in a way prides himself on that. But I mean, some would argue, actually, that the share price of of, um, Tesla, SpaceX obviously is a separate point because it remains private, is already inflated by that hype. Can he get even more bang for buck utilising utilizing Twitter? Because as an investor, you've got to be really careful here the way that you you perceive any of these things. Yeah, maybe. And look, does it do you or I necessarily see how he would do it? No. But, you know, he also figured out how to make Tesla's market cap vastly more than it should be in the first place. And look, this is not someone who has a long history of respect and for the SEC and its rules. So if if the reason not to do that is, oh, it's not allowed by the U.S. government, that has never stopped him before. Can he make this profitable, Brad? I mean, it's it's interesting. I mean, the business model, and I think most of us agree that the uh, the advertising model of social media is part of what fuels the toxicity of the social discourse. You need eyeballs. Eyeballs are attracted by extreme content, controversial content, and that sort of fuels the beast in a sense and this echo chamber of like-minded um, opinions and, and beliefs. So if you want to break that, then you ultimately undermine the financial reason for owning or investing in some of these social media brands. Um, for me, I, I, I don't see the monetization, the bigger monetization potential if you take him at face value when he says that actually part of the reason for owning this was trying to cut through some of the crazy and the noise and the extremism and the ability of a social media platform to silence a president, which you can, you know, and you know, and have been involved in politics for many years. And there are questionable questions to be asked about that, whether any social media platform should have that power. Um, I'm sort of asking 40 different questions in one, Brad. You can you can answer how you choose. Yeah, I got it. Yeah, so I would say this. The, the first thing is, in the question of whether or not a platform like Twitter can be profitable, keep in mind there are new headwinds that it hasn't even run into yet that are likely to happen. So there's a law in the U.S. government called Section 230, the Telecommunications Decency Act. I know that sounds pretty, uh, you know, pretty granular there. But what it does, why it's so important, is it protects platforms from any liability from the content posted by their users. So no matter what I post about you on Twitter or Facebook or TikTok or whatever it is, you can sue me. But in most cases, I don't have any assets to recover. But you can't sue Facebook. You can't Mm. sue Twitter. So as a result, the entire business model developed to say, we need to maximize clicks to maximize advertising revenue. Toxic content gets more clicks than positive content. We can't get in trouble for it anyway because we're protected by Section 230. So therefore, we can do whatever we want. Um, the that may not remain. The only thing that I'm aware of in the 2020 Trump and Biden platforms uh, that were the same was calling for the repeal of Section 230. Um, it has bipartisan support. If that were to happen, the business model for every social media platform in this country will get far harder and far worse. So I think it, not only is there not a path to profitability, it might actually get a lot worse. Yeah. I mean, this is this is also a fascinating question for Meta, uh, formerly Facebook, because we're already seeing their 
traditional business model being challenged by greater privacy controls from Apple. And we've seen that in the numbers now for a, for a number of quarters. Um, you raise an interesting question and have done on numerous occasions, which is you know, there's a regulatory role to play here, as you just mentioned. As a venture capitalist, though, when somebody comes to you with an idea and says, hey, you know, I, I need funding, you also have a role at that point to go, is this a good idea? Yeah. Is this also a good idea for society? And will this be beneficial or net beneficial? What are the, the negative yeah. externalities? here. And I just wonder, as you see um, Mark Zuckerberg pivoting into things that most people don't understand, to be honest, virtual reality, um, the metaverse and what that means. How do you perceive that as an investor, whether it's from a potential social good aspect, a monetization potential? Um, What do you see going on there? Because I think this is another time where we can ask that question about social good, net social good. For sure. Look, if you look at the VCs who invested early in Facebook, in Twitter, in Snap, I don't know that they could have envisioned all the negative consequences that these companies would then bring upon society. So I don't think that they meant to unleash what they did. At the same time, there's been a complete blockage of any sort of regulation that would make the platforms less dangerous, less toxic, less harmful. So your point is really, really salient, Julia, because... We're right now, call it five to seven years away from some sort of pretty developed version of the metaverse. The metaverse will be so much bigger and so more immersive than Web 2.0 that everything good about the Internet will be magnified, but everything bad about the Internet will also be magnified. Um, And if we can't deal with some of these basic issues like uh, privacy, like free speech, like uh, the ability to protect your data, protect, you know, not not have teenagers, you know, being shown how to cut themselves or engage in eating disorders and all of that. Um, imagine what it's going to be on the metaverse when everything is, feels 10 times more real. And so, yeah, I think it's really important that the government now start thinking about this thing is coming. Meta alone is spending, what, $25 billion this year on R&D for it. Um, and we've already failed to regulate the regular Internet properly it'll get a lot worse unless we start taking action. So, yeah, um, I think that the risks are there. And I also think the fact that while Facebook stock is way down, Mark Zuckerberg is not someone I would ever bet against. And I think just like he had a vision in the early to mid-2000s that turned one of the most valuable companies in history, I think that very well may prove true again. Yeah. Uh, these are some of the things that keep me awake at night, to be honest, because we've we've been through a period and we've seen what's happened. And this is going to be way bigger, to your point. Um, we have to continue this conversation, but I'm out of time today. Thank you for making me smarter. Actually, I always feel like that when we sure. talk, we shall reconvene. <laughs> Bradley Tusk, the founder of Tusk Thank Ventures. You. Thank you. Okay, up next, it's being called one of the most important elections in Brazilian history. We're live in Sao Paulo to look at what's at stake as people head to the polls. Welcome back. It's the last few days of campaigning in Brazil's presidential election, and it's been described as one of the most important ever. Leftist former president Lula da Silva is challenging the incumbent from the far right, Jair Bolsonaro. Among the biggest issues are inflation and rising poverty. And Paula Newton is in Sao Paulo for us. Paula, wonderful to have you on the show. Just tell us what's at stake. 
so much, really. And when you think about the division in this country, Julia, among voters, it sounds so familiar to you, right? We have a far-right candidate, some would argue a far-left candidate, and they are going at it. In some cases, this is about the culture wars. Uh, the president, uh, Bolsonaro, clearly getting a lot of mileage out of that. Uh, but the issue is that the division here and the issues have such resonance all around the world. Take a look. Millions more in Brazil now are armed and ready. Ready to load, aim, and fire. Gun ownership, who can own them, and why people need them, has become an election issue. And it's the president himself, Jal Bolsonaro, who wants more Brazilians to bear arms. He's loosened strict gun ownership laws and made promises of more gun rights to come. Win or lose, Bolsonaro's armed masses aren't going anywhere. One of the owners of this gun club tells us Bolsonaro is the best gun salesman he's ever had. He basically did free advertising, encouraging people to buy guns and defend themselves that way. Daniel Pazzini tells me he believes Bolsonaro's opponent, former president Luiz Ignacio Lula da Silva, may try to crack down on gun ownership if he wins. Doubts it will work, but like most gun owners, he's not chancing it. He's voting for Bolsonaro. Many devout evangelicals, too, are faithful to God and Bolsonaro. Pastor Odilon Santos says it is his right to take a stand on politics and influence others in his battle against abortion, gay rights, drug legalization. Our current president has an agenda aimed at protecting all of that, those principles which are our rule of faith and our practice. As for Lula, he doesn't trust him, even though he wrote an open letter to evangelicals saying he wouldn't touch religious freedom. His very public stance is that he will regulate not just the church, but a lot of things, including the media and social media. To be clear, Lula has never said he will restrict the media, guns or religious freedom. Which brings us to the issue of misinformation. As presidential supporters at this rally claim Lula will separate Brazilians from their creator, they accuse judges and bureaucrats of shutting down free speech, with new regulations aimed at stopping the spread of false information. Bolsonaro's son tells us his father is defending freedom and will fight what he calls censorship. It's unbelievable. They just say this is fake news, this is anti-democratic, yes, and they arrest you. Lula, meantime, campaigns on reversing Bolsonaro's influence on social issues, which he says have ruined Brazil. Believe me, he says, we are going to revive this country. In this tight presidential runoff, it has been a ballot box trifecta. Guns, God, and so-called fake news. Where voters stand on each contentious issue will shape this country's future. 
you know, the contenders face off in a presidential debate tonight. Julia, good luck to the fact checkers on that one. Look, I know how closely you follow the economy here and not just that, but also environmental policy. What happens here in the next few days, weeks, months will affect literally all of us. And that is not hyperbole, uh, especially when you consider the, the diverse policy stands of these two contenders. Julia. Yes, the future of the Amazon and how we best tackle climate change and emissions in the future at the core of this too. Paula, great to have you with us once again. Thank you. Paula Newton there. More first move after this. Welcome back to First Move. Mortgages, interest rates, debt. For children especially, those are big words and big concepts to understand. But new technology is making it possible to learn about personal finance from a young age. In today's Think Big, Anna Stewart reports on the money management app for kids in Dubai. Ten-year-old George and seven-year-old Molly are not the most typical of children. Yes, they study and they play, but they also discuss their finances. If I gave her a thousand dirhams, she would save it. Like, what's the point? To get something good. The catalyst for this conversation is Edfundo. Built in Dubai, it's a mobile application that aims to teach children about money. Edfundo is a family financial education and money management app that's built by teachers, which provides families early access to personal finance. With the app, parents can send their children pocket money digitally and track their spending. The kids have a prepaid debit card and a separate dashboard. And my spend pot has 146 and my save pot has 25. Where they can set personal goals. So what do you think you're going to save for? I believe I'm going to save for a BMX. The idea is for children to learn while engaging themselves in real-life spending. They can really manipulate exactly what they want to do and, and, and essentially operate within a real-world situation by learning through doing. Worldwide, only 17% of adults claim to have a high knowledge of finance in a 2020 survey conducted by the Organisation for Economic Cooperation and Development. Making sure children start becoming aware of key financial concepts is a goal for some parents and educators. It's really important for kids to understand all of this as they're growing up. Not to scare them, but so that they have the language and vocabulary so they understand what these things are. Because if you know what the deal is, uh, you won't get hurt. Do you want to add a photo of it? While apps like Edfundo might help, oh, wow. for Nan, the role parents and teachers play is still fundamental in the process. I mean, if you think about it, the first time you went out to play a sport, somebody probably came with you. And learning about money is a lot like that. The apps, to me, fit in to a broader group of tools that can be used by students, teachers, parents to help their kids learn more, more about money. George is working hard to achieve his goal of getting the BMX bike. And he has chosen a very well thought out deadline. Uh, I believe I should save up until um, December the 23rd. Uh, it's my birthday, so if I don't reach the goal, my dad can buy it for me. <laughs> so the family may have a long road ahead as they teach their kids about finance. But today's tools, like Edfundo, could make the journey more fun. Anna Stewart, CNN. 
And that's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. You can search for at CNN. Connect the World with Becky Anderson is next. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.